Hello, and welcome to Security by the Book, a monthly podcast series from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on National Security, Technology, and Law. In this episode, Task Force co-chair and Hoover Senior Fellow Jack Goldsmith interviews Adam Siegel on his new book, The Hacked World Order, How Nations Fight, Trade, Maneuver, and Manipulate in the Digital Age. It was recorded on March 28, 2016. Very happy to have Adam Siegel here to talk to him about his new book, The The Hacked World Order. Adam's at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's one of the leading authorities in the country on all matters cyber. I think it's fair to say you have a special expertise in cyber in China. And I think we'll just start off by asking you, what is the hacked world order? Uh, first, let me thank uh, Hoover and, and Lawfare for, for hosting me and, and, and having me here today. Uh, the hacked world order, basically, I, I, in the book, I, I talk about what I call year zero, from around June 2012 to June 2013, roughly, where uh, basically the kind of utopian vision, the ideal of cyberspace as being free from government interference breathed its last breath, that governments uh, reasserted themselves with authority, uh, concerns about data localization, data flows, how to use cyber uh, as a strategic tool, uh, and we really began to see the reassertion of sovereignty uh, in cyberspace. Why do you think, and also you talk about in, in, in Year Zero, you talk about all of the kind of cyber events that happened, the, the notorious cyber events. Um, so I want you to mention some of those, but why do you think 2012, there have been warnings about cybersecurity problems and the vulnerability of the networks going back decades at least. Uh, the count, the um, National Research Council has been doing worrisome studies about this for, for 20 years at least. What is it about the last three, four, five years that has made the problem really severe and how would you characterize the problem? Well, I I think you're right. People have been writing about the risk for a long time, but we tended to see it as the risk of uh, individual hackers or non-state groups or, you know, script kiddies are going to cause this this damage. But, you know, June 2012 were the first Sanger stories about Stuxnet. You know, of course, Stuxnet had happened earlier and the malware had been released and kind of deconstructed before that. But June 2012 was when the story started coming out that this was a U.S.-Israel operation against Natanz uh, and the centrifuges of, of the Iranian nuclear program. June 2013 is when Snowden shows up, Edward Snowden, the NSA contractor, shows up in Hong Kong uh, and begins revealing what the NSA is, is doing in, in cyberspace. So I think what makes the year different is, is that we've known about hackers, we've known uh, you know, the potential of what nation states could do, but this was the first year where the nation states really said, you know, this is the year we, we've arrived and you're going to see it. And it's no accident, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, that both of those examples are about aggressive U.S. cyber action. Snowden reveals global penetration of, of networks and massive global surveillance. Stuxnet reveals that the United States has extraordinarily offensive attack capabilities. Is there something about that that made it uh, it's, an it's a, year? It's a, good bu- it's a good bookend. I don't know, you know, it, um, it's certainly because... Uh, I do think that the U.S. is the predominant power, uh, and we have shaped the Internet and cyberspace for the, its first 30, 40 years. Um, throughout the year, of course, we saw numerous other incidents. You know, the, the Chinese probably would have been the headline. Uh, then, of course, we had the Iranian DDoS attacks on, on the U.S. banks. 
the attack uh, on Saudi Aramco, we had the Mandiant report on cyber espionage. So there were lots of great examples, but it certainly was a good bookend that the U.S. was at the beginning and the end. So you talked about the United States being the big power here, but you have an interesting discussion in the book of what cyber power is, and you have an interesting claim, I think, that U.S. cyber power may have peaked or be near its peak or, or maybe we're in decline. Could you tell us how you think of cyber power and why you think that we may be at our apex now or on the way down? Yeah, I, I, I basically describe, I think, four bases of power. The, the first one is uh, economic or technological power, right? If you're not creating the, the technologies that, that undergrid cyberspace, then you're always going to be a, a, a receiver. Um, or you have a massive market, right? You can, you can certainly shift uh, and influence what the country, co countries and companies do if you have a large uh, base of users. Uh, you need to have um, uh, an aggressive or creative intelligence uh, and military arm for cyber. I think, you know, in, I, I met a, very early on when I was doing the book, I met a, an operative from a three-letter agency, he never told me which, and he basically said, you know, if you can imagine it, you can make it happen. I, I think that's hyperbolic, but the fact that you have people out there who believe that and think, oh, if I can imagine, I can make it happen, shows you you have a kind of intelligence agencies that are willing to try really kind of out there things. And I think, uh, you know, General Hayden calls it but playing near the edge or putting near the edge. I think you have to have a story, right? What it is that you're doing in cyberspace, uh, and is that attractive to other people? And then finally, I, I think you need to have a, a strong relationship with the private sector, right? We always hear about that the, the, the defining characteristic of this domain versus the other ones, as besides that it's constantly being made and remade, is that most of it is in the hands of the, of the private sector. So if you can uh, motivate your private sector to push in the same direction, then you have a real sense of strength. Why I think the U.S. is, is peaking or has peaked already uh, is tied up in all of those. I think Partly, you know, one of the realizations from year zero was other countries said the current structure plays to the U.S. advantages and, and this had played this way and we need to start actively reshaping it. And the second main reason is that the Snowden revelations have done such damage to the relationship between Washington and Silicon Valley that it's unclear to me that we're ever going to put that back together again uh, in the ways that have been uh, such a source of strength in the United States. So I want to talk about each one of those. Um, on reshaping the structure, so I think of transiting traffic and the fact that so much internet traffic came through the United States and what advantages that gave us on many fronts. I think of our nominal control over ICANN. Are those, the, and the, that ever since the Snowden revelations we've seen, so we've seen responses to both of those since Snowden as you talk about one kind of movement for data sovereignty, or I think it's more of a, more talk than action so far, but it certainly something is happening. And um, so, and, and what was the other one I, that I just mentioned? Uh, anyway, let's start with the first yeah. one. So tell, tell, what, tell us about uh, how big a deal was Snowden? I think Snowden was a big deal. I think, um, you know, it, it, it affected U.S. power on the, on the first front that I mentioned, right? This, the relationship between the private sector and the, and, and the government. It certainly affected the story the U.S. told, right? You know. In 2011, the, the White House released its international strategy on cyberspace, and it said, you know, the U.S. is for uh, internet that's uh, global, global, open, uh, secure, and interoperable. Um, and then a lot of countries, after this, all the Sun revelations, said, well, you know, 
you guys are complaining about what the Chinese are doing and what the Russians are doing. You seem to be involved in a, taking advantage of the behavior. And why should we push in the same direction as you? Why, do, why should we believe the, the, the story? And I think you know what Snowden did for lots of countries domestically was give them justification for things they already wanted to do. Right? Lots of other countries did want to restructure the internet uh, at, the, at the top level on the governance structure. Uh, they wanted to restructure it. Um, Are you talking about ICANN there? ICANN right. and, and um, you know, what role the WTO, the World Trade, uh, the, the ITU, the International right. Telecommunications Union should play and the UN should play. They well, want let's, let's go through each one of these. Let me stop you there because I think on those fronts, there's been a lot of talk but not much pushback. Yeah, I mean, ICANN has become, I mean, there's been a reaction that the United States should give up nominal control, which we're in the midst of, but there wasn't really really control there. Again, but if you remember, right, the Snowden revelations happen, uh, the five I stars, right, the ICANN and uh, ITIF, the right. Internet, uh, um, I'm going to say, you, can't, you use all these acronyms, you can't even remember right. the names of them. But the five uh, multi-stakeholder groups meet in Montevideo right. and they say, you know, we, we think we should reorganize the, the structure of the Internet. The Brazilians start pushing this, this new model. So I think Snowden fed into that. But nothing happened. I mean, the ITU has been meeting after meeting. They've been threatening to take over the Internet. And meeting after meeting, it seems to me, there's a lot of hysteria and buildup. I'm not even sure what it looks like to take over the top-level structure of the Internet. And so I, just think, I definitely think that there's been a change in rhetoric. Yeah. And there's been a push to try to diminish American authority in this context. But I, it's not like the ITU has been really empowered post-Snowden. No, I, and I agree. I think it's mostly rhetoric, and I think it, it, it has mostly to do a lot with, with um, uh, how it, the kind of optics of it all. But, you know, the, the U.S. was talking about transitioning uh, ICANN and the, and the, the IANA uh, contract for third, 20 years. Going now? back to the beginning. Really. The beginning. We said, you know, we're going we're gonna to do this transition in, in, in two years, and then they pushed it back, you know, another 20 years. So the fact that we finally started doing that after the Snowden, you know, again, you're right. I don't think it fundamentally changes the structure of the Internet. It doesn't mean the ITU is going to take control over it, but it clearly had a motivating factor in what the U.S. Right, wanted to but do. even there, and I'm not disagreeing with you, even there it seems that the transition, the ICANN transition, is not going to be one that's, Maybe there's a little bit more government influence, but I don't think it's going to be government dominated in a way that it wasn't before. Do you think that's right? I think that's right, but I think also, um, you know, the main audience for those announcements is in part ITU, and, but it's also Brazil and India and other countries, right? And so the Brazilians and the Indians had a narrative that, you know, we need to get this done or otherwise we don't really have a lot right. to cooperate with the U.S. on these fronts. And so getting this out of the way I think has really helped bridge the gap with those two countries. Okay, so the other big, now I remember what I meant to ask you, the other big fallout from Snowden, or at least one other big one, was, for lack of a better phrase, the data localization movement. Um, and I think there, under many guises, nations trying to assert more control over data that they think they should have control over. So can you tell us what's happened on that front and how big a deal, how, is, is that, has there been more movement there? Certainly there seems to be in Europe a bit. Yeah, so I think, you know, clearly on the European front, right, the, the collapse of Safe Harbor and, and um, the, the Privacy Shield agreement that hopefully will take its place, I think, is clearly a fallout from, from Snowden. I think the data localization has not gone as far as some of the Europeans wanted to push it, but, you know, a lot of those people that were pushing it for, for a, in a much kind of hardcore way had economic interest 
to do it, and their economic interests hit up against other economic interests, right? So Deutsche Telekom said, you know, let's build this uh, Schengen cloud or, you know, European cloud, and, and SAP and Volkswagen and the other European countries said, that's ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense for us economically, and so it kind of, uh, kind of out, fell out of, out of favor. But, you know, Amazon and other companies now say, we're going to build data centers in Europe and we're going to store your data locally so uh, European authorities have access to it. So I think the, the fallout on that has been fairly effective. And I think, you know, with the Chinese, we're still can I, waiting. Can I stop you there? So what does that mean exactly? Does that mean that cloud-based services that Amazon provides to European users, will, will, the data will only be stored in Europe? Is that really what it means? Because no, it's clearly going to have to be mirrored everywhere, right? right? Because otherwise the cloud wouldn't be that, that's what That's why I don't understand. Is this, is this a PR move? Well, I think it would make it easier for European law uh, uh, enforcement to gain access to the data, right? If it is stored... So it's easier to get access to the data, yeah. and that's why. But they could just as easily have mirrored the data in Europe. If they, if they, they, they could have, but I think there was a certain kind of political signaling that to say, oh, we have a server here. Even though, yes, if you, because I think before the, the, the companies were mirroring and said, we don't have operations here, right? We're just doing advertising. And so we don't have to, if you want the data, go through the MLAT process. Right. Right. But you have the server here, then you have operations, then, then the data right. can be handed over that way. And just, just one more prejudice I yeah. want to push, and you can tell me why I'm wrong. How big, are the, how big has the impact really been on U.S. firms? We hear a lot of talk yeah. about about how the bottom line of U.S. IT firms is really being negatively impacted. I haven't seen any, I've heard, read a lot of numbers, but yeah. I haven't really, really seen any analysis. I haven't noticed Facebook stock price suffering, for example. So I'm just wondering what, has, has there, has, do you think there really has been yeah, there was a that, material problem? There was that number for a while, right? They were going to lose $35 billion, right. I think, from, from the cloud stuff. I, don't, I haven't seen any follow-up, quite honestly. I think it's unlikely to uh, hurt the big companies that much, right? We've seen that Microsoft and Amazon, they can build the data, uh, they can build servers local, it's not that big a deal. I think probably the uncertainty for smaller companies has right. had an impact, and that's probably harder to get a quantitative right. me measure to. Right. Okay, let's shift topics to deterrence and the U.S. deterrence posture, which you talk about a lot in the book. Um, and why don't you just review for us what the basic challenges have been for the United States in deterring actors, for lack of a better phrase, state actors, non-state actors, from penetrating and doing various things in U.S. public and private networks? Yeah, so, you know, it's the widely known attribution problem, right? You, you don't know who the uh, attacker is. You don't know. They can mass uh, the attacks, run them through networks. They can launch them from computers inside the United States. Uh, you often don't know the intent of the attacker, right? So if you see somebody in the network, uh, are they there for espionage reasons or are they there to prepare the battlefield? Um, are they operating under government control or are they a proxy? Uh, and so under standard deterrence theory, right, you have to have uh, identify the, the, the possible attacker and have the threat of retaliation soon after the attack. And that doesn't seem to exist uh, in cyberspace. But even so... So that's one obvious difficulty. Um, the United States has been somewhere between more confident about attribution and bragging about its attribution capabilities in the last few years. So, and and uh, we're going to get to the, the uh, DOJ strategy, the indictment strategy in a moment, but part of that strategy is to signal, yeah. at least DOJ officials have said, 
part of the strategy of indicting Chinese hackers and indicting Iranian hackers is not to bring them to trial, but to signal that we can we know who you yeah. are and we can find you. Um, so it seems like even with attribution, so, but even if we have attribution, it seems that the only cost, obvious cost from publishing their names is people who worry yeah. about having their names published. I think that's a rarely small, small cost. So even if we overcome the attribution problem, there still seems to be challenges. Yeah, again, but I think you have to break it down what you're trying to deter and, and, and what you're trying to signal. I, I, I think we, we're, in some cases, you know, what we're also trying to deter is destructive attacks from China and Russia. And that, I think, is working. Right? I think for the most part, the Chinese and Russians know that in the case of a conflict, if they launch a cyber attack that causes physical destruction or, or death, that, that we would probably attribute it and we would respond you know, in the way, shape, or form as, as we choose. And do you think that, that, is that kind of a mutually assured destruction? I do. I think, I, think, I think that we, they can say the same to us. I do. I think there, I think there is a restraint from the great powers um, on cyber deterrence for those big destructive We're attacks. We're talking about cyber deterrence for large attacks. For large attacks. It's clearly not for espionage. Yeah. Clearly there's a whole range of attacks that are going to be below that threshold. So I'm talking about a very narrow, thin band of deterrence that I think works. But even that, I'll just say, and you can tell me if this is wrong, even that, you could call that deterrence, or it's just very hard to see. You qualified it by saying in a conflict, but it's yeah. very hard to see anytime, anywhere on the radar screen why China or Russia would have an interest in the first place, even to be deterred. Yes, so uh, I, the Chinese are not going to turn the lights out out of the blue, right? right. So th th we're not deterring them from that. And they may have be deterred from uh, offensive cyber operations because they're not sure they're going to work, or they have other means, right. right? So again, it's a pretty narrow band I'm talking about deterrent. And I think you know, non-state actors, it clearly doesn't work. Uh, espionage, it clearly doesn't work. Um, and uh, for the North Koreans and the Iranians, for the, again, for, this, for the layer of disruptive attacks below destructive attacks, it also doesn't seem to work. So can we go through those? Why yeah. doesn't it work for espionage? And let's talk about state-to-state -state espionage to start. Why, what's the challenge there? Well, I, again, uh, what espionage we're talking about, I think political military... Let's say, let's say the OPM hack or the, uh, stealing information from DOD. All right, so political military espionage, I don't think it works because... We don't actually want to stop that espionage, right? Because we because we do, do it, it yeah. and and we're good at it, and you know I think Hayden was always saying we're pretty good at it and probably better than anybody else at it. So I think we want to disrupt it, we want to stop it on our end, but we don't necessarily really think that it's going to end. And so and we don't we haven't been pushing a norm against it. And in fact, Hayden and Alexander, to my surprise, were kind of I think it was Hayden and Alexander. They both kind of suggested that they were kind of impressed with what China did. Yeah, Clapper. They said we would have done, Clapper maybe. Clapper was, yeah. said, yes, I kind of have to tip my hat yeah. to the statecraft of the OPM hacked. So amazing. I think on the political military side, we're not really trying to deter that. Um, That's an interesting claim. So I, do you really, let me just pressure on that. Yeah. You, do you, you really think that? Because there are a lot of people who say they're worrying about it, but then. I think we want to, we want to disrupt it. But we right? don't, we don't purport to. I don't think it. we really believe that we're going to stop espionage through deterrence. Yeah, okay. Um, we want to just, again, we want to make our defenses harder. We certainly want to make it harder on them, but I don't really think we want to deter. I think we want to deter destructive and disruptive attacks. And how about deterrence on the private cyber espionage, cyber theft side, where there's been a lot of talk of cyber deterrence, yeah. uh, and this will take us into the agreement last spring with the Chinese and Americans and more broadly, but before we get to that, 
How do you see the logic of deterrence, say, of, of IP theft? Uh, so then you would then, I think the reason why they have been saying, oh, we can do attribution better is because they are possibly getting ready for sanctions. I don't think the indictments work, right? The indictments, this idea that you are scaring the next generation of hackers, right? So there's some, you know, 17-year-old in, in Wuhan who's thinking, you know, one day I want to go to America, so I'm not going to hack, you know, I, I mean, you know, what 17-year-old is thinking that far in advance, right. much less a hacker, right? I, I don't... I don't see that as a deterrent. But I do think the threat of sanctions on Chinese companies that benefit might have some deterrent, um, some deterrent value. So that would be how you would exert so, so, some leverage. So you think that the, that the Chinese indictments are setting the stage for the issuance of sanctions under the executive order from last year? I think so, and I think also there's an... Uh, we don't know what the Chinese leadership knows about cyber, right? We know that Xi Jinping has set up this small leadership group. We know he thinks it's really important. There's no, in the Xi's phrasing, no national security without, you know, cyber security. But does he truly understand how attribution works? Does he truly understand what the U.S. government can or cannot see? I think it's probably unlikely, yeah. right? Somebody, you know, may have briefed Xi Jinping and said, no, attribution's really hard. We can get away with these things. You know, there's no cost to us. So by indicting the PLA hackers and saying, no, here are these five guys, it may be that that message gets through to Xi that he has to think, oh, actually, maybe attribution is easier than I've been told. When I spoke to John Carlin, the Assistant Attorney General in the National Security Division last fall at Harvard about this, he actually mentioned that as one of the main mechanisms by which these indictments may contribute to deterrence. He put it a little differently. He said that it's a big country and a big government and not people at the top don't necessarily know what everybody else is doing. And whether that's true or not, it's a way of the United States sort of bringing internal transparency to the Chinese government. I mean, given what we know about the level of understanding in our government of these capabilities and how stovepipe these technologies are, what I know about the Chinese government is even more stovepipe. So there may be some kind of used to that setting, setting the messages. So let's talk about China for a little bit more broadly. Can you just lay out for us the, because it's so different than the American approach, the sort of an empathetic account of the Chinese conception of, of cybersecurity? Yeah, I think um, the Chinese have clearly said that they want cyber sovereignty or internet sovereignty, which, uh, you know, broadly basically means we want the right to manage our internet in the way that we see fit with outside, without any outside interference. Um, and you can think about that from the level of you know, the hardware and the software all the way up to internet governance. And we've seen the Chinese basically try to exert influence all the way through, right? So on the chip and the level of the software, we've had this plan in place at least since 1996, if not since 1897 of you know, technological mercantilism and, and technological innovation. The Chinese don't want to be dependent on the West for technology. And they've done this throughout a whole range of technologies. And cyber is just the most recent. But IT has been a concern from the beginning. So how do you, you know, replace um, you know, Windows with uh, Kylin? And how do you replace IBM with Inspur? And how do you replace uh, um, Cisco with Huawei? Right? How do you do that? And for a long time, there wasn't a Chinese technology competitor, and now there, there might be. You can kind of shift that. And they've been doing that through, you know, 
regulatory policy, anti-monopoly policy, cybersecurity law, anti-terrorism law, those things. Then, of course, we uh, know about the control of content, right, into China and within China, right, because from the beginning, the Chinese have seen the Internet as a, as a dual-edged sword, right, necessary for economic growth, but clearly a threat to domestic stability and regime legitimacy. And so how do you cut that line so you still have a vibrant economy, but keep the economy, but keep the information you want out? Um, you know, there was that great uh, famous quote from uh, President Clinton that, you know, the Chinese would fail at this because controlling the Internet would be like nailing jello to the wall. Um, but it turns out the Chinese are pretty good at nailing jello to the wall. Um, or as you know, Stuart Baker put it in an interview I did with him the other day, they convinced the jello to climb up on the wall itself. Right. Um, and so they've, they've done that, you know, both through uh, technologies, the great firewall to keep information out, um, and then internally uh, a censorship system, system. Uh, intermediate intermediate liability, right? So Chinese companies are responsible for what their users post, so they employ tens of thousands of censors. Uh, Intimidation, uh, right? Arresting uh, people who uh, were spreading rumors, um, and that's you know so far has has worked out pretty well, right? We thought everybody thought Weibo, the Chinese kind of Twitter equivalent, was going to tilt the balance uh, towards netizens and users. The Chinese have seemed to have you know lots of people are now getting off Weibo and moving to other uh, platforms, um, and then finally we see this discussion about internet governance. You know, the Chinese are, are, are one of the countries that don't like ICANN, don't trust it, uh, want the ITU to play a larger role, and have been kind of promoting their own initiatives. They just, this, this year was the second year they had this big conference in Wuhan, uh, where they're promoting this idea of cyber sovereignty. So I want to ask you about each of those three elements. So far, following up on the economic organization and the economic ambitions, what role does IP theft, especially from U.S. firms, play in that strategy? And so that, that's the first question. The yeah. second question is, what is your take on the, the famous agreement last yeah. spring? Maybe, and maybe you should explain what that agreement was. Yeah. Um, so my, my take on it is it, it's, you know, it plays an important part, right? So the Chinese um, basically decided that, you know, they were not going to, missed the next industrial revolution or technological revolution. It, it goes back at least to 1986 when they started a program called the 863 program that started in March of 1986. Uh, actually, a lot of these uh, strategic scientists went to Silicon Valley, saw what was happening, and came back and told Deng Xiaoping, we, we need to kind of catch up. And the Chinese have ramped up massively on science, technology, and R&D. They now spend uh, second most in the world af uh, after the United States uh, on R&D. Uh, about 140 billion, 150 billion a year past Japan last year. Uh, largest producer of patents uh, in the world. Uh, largest producer of scientific papers. Uh, 60 to 70 percent of all undergraduates are in the STEM fields, right? Science, technology, engineering, and, and math. So a massive, massive push on R&D and science and innovation. But they're unhappy with the outputs, right? So they're, they just haven't innovated as quickly as they wanted to. And so IP theft, both just normal IP theft, right? You know, uh, at home and domestically from joint ventures, and cyber plays a big part. You mean it. reaching into the United States and stealing IP? Yeah, so stealing what U.S. companies have willingly brought to China. Right. Um, 
which has probably been the vast majority of it, right. and then reaching into U.S. companies and companies abroad and taking it. And so this was, you know, as it's been described by the U.S. government and by American firms, I can't remember who's described it as the greatest. Greatest transfer of wealth in human history. Who said that? Well, originally it was, I think, Dmitry Alperovitch of CrowdStrike, but then uh, Alexander's used to say Alexander it. Alexander appropriated, it, right. Yeah. So, um, so in light of that, and in light, if there's, there's some truth to that. It's, yeah. been, it's, been, it's been going on and it's been very profitable for the Chinese. Um, so what do you make of why did we see this, this deal between the Chinese and the Americans last year where basically the Chinese accepted, you can correct me if I'm wrong, accepted the American position, at least at the normative level, there's no treaty or anything, but they accepted the proposition that they would not engage in intellectual property theft for the purposes of benefiting their own firms. Yeah. And so what motivated it? It's, the whole thing is a mystery to me. Yes. Why did it happen and, how, and what do we know about its effectiveness? Yeah, to be quite honest, it's a mystery to me as well. I, you know, a week before the, uh, President Xi came for the visit and I was asked to write something about what to expect on cyber, I said nothing. You should not expect anything. because. I think both there was a sense that there was no cost to the Chinese, right, and it, and it was so important to their uh, economic modernization that they wouldn't stop. Uh, the norm against commercial espionage that the U.S. was trying to promote was not one that was accepted pretty much by any other country uh, except maybe the U.K. So, you know, we have U.S. allies, South Korea, Israel, France, who don't accept this distinction necessarily between commercial theft of IP and, 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 and cyber espionage. Uh, and, there are, and there are reasons to think that, you know, given the, the state-owned enterprises in China, that the Chinese themselves didn't really see much of a distinction between public actors and private actors. So I, I was very um, skeptical that anything happened. And when it did, I was, I was particularly surprised. Uh, why it happened, um, I, I think the the argument that makes the most sense to me is, um, and they're kind of contradictory, uh, is one, the Chinese didn't see any cost to it, quite honestly. They had lots of other things that they wanted to get along with the U.S. for, and they thought the U.S. was pretty serious ab about pushing cyber up the agenda. Um, and so to say that you're not going to do something that you say you've never done before, Especially since they, they had, their position basically was, we don't even engage in cyber. We don't engage at in all. any cyber espionage. So it's, so it's easy to, to agree to something less than that, in effect, even though it's more specific. To say was didn't really cost them anything. That said, I do think the threat of sanctions focused their mind. I think um, from what I've heard, you know, it was not only the threat of sanctions, but the th sanctions were going to be levied at some fairly important SOEs that had ties to people that were fairly up. That was those people do travel. Right. Uh, and so that would have had some cost for them. You know, looking forward to the agreement, I, I kind of think about it um, as the kind of the, the good, the unknown, and the bad. The, the good is, so as I said before, this norm wasn't widely accepted. I didn't think the Chinese would accept it, but they signed this agreement. Uh, a month after that, they signed a similar agreement with the British. Uh, then they signed an agreement at the G20 uh, in Turkey in November that had the same norm in it, and sometime this year they're supposed to sign off with the Germans. So to go from a norm that nobody recognized to have it um, now enshrined in four different places seems to me to be some progress on the normative front. The unknown is, is it having any effect on Chinese behavior? And here we're getting you know, some pretty mixed signals, both from the intelligence community and the companies, the 
the cybersecurity companies themselves, right? In the month or two after the, the agreement was signed, there were several reports that no, the, the, the hacking had not gone down. In fact, there, there's a fairly large campaign against pharmaceuticals. Then we did hear that the hacking went down, but it may have been that they were just getting better, right? So Chinese hackers were always just known for being really noisy. And so maybe now they were hiding their tracks better. They were taking more time on their on their Especially on their since that the way the norm was phrased, it was only for conduct conducted by the state or tolerated by the knowingly state. Knowingly supported or or uh, knowingly conducted or knowingly, knowingly supported. supported yeah. So it has to be conducted or knowingly supported. So there's a lot of room for mischief in the knowingly supported. It could be a private so that you can do you can hide your tracks better and continue as, as before. Yeah, and so, um, and then, you know, we had, originally Clapper so far has pretty much held off and he's, you know, he's basically said, I, I can't make any judgment, Just, I'm, I'm still watching. And then Rogers last week seemed to fall more on the negative side saying we, we haven't seen a decline in activity, but he lumped them all together. Yeah, it was hard to, it, it was hard to say whether he, he wasn't really committing to saying like they had violated the specifics of the agreement, but yeah. That was kind of the signal he sent, I thought. Yeah, and so then the bad would be, um, so on the Chinese side, we could see some signs towards professionalization and consolidation of power, right? In particular, the Chinese announced that they were setting up these strategic support forces, but we're not, it's not a cyber command per se, but it's gonna have some cyber components to it. And that might suggest that, uh, you know, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army should focus on cyber as a tool for uh, Warcraft, and that the espionage would go, to, would go to the Ministry of State Security, right, the MSS. And so some of the uh, um, cybersecurity companies have said, well, what we've seen is a shift from the PLA to the MSS. So then you could say that also what might be happening, and this is a story that came out last week or two weeks ago, I think, was that we've seen an uptake in criminal activity from Chinese hackers, right? So ransomware, right? Uh, malware that takes over your computer, encrypts your, your, your drive, and then says, you know, pay us a ransom for us to undo it. It generally has been the work of criminals in, in Eastern Europe and Russia. Now there seems to be a wave of Chinese hackers doing it. They, they didn't seem interested in it before. Some speculation that maybe those are PLA hackers that have been cut loose, <laughs> or people that used to contract with the PLA, and they've been cut loose because the, the PLA is professionalizing. So that would be the kind of bad effect of the, of the agreement. So why, I'm going to move on from this, but why do you say the norm is good if we don't know if behavior has changed and if there are all these bad things happening as well? It seems to me that it, it might not be an improvement. Well, I think one, you know, it's, if the norm is in place, it's been six months, and so norms take a while to get, um, you know, you don't, you don't have norms until you have either, you know, state practice or, or ruling on them, and so... And also we want to signal to other people, right? So uh, I think there's been a lot of freeloading, right? The Europeans and the Japanese have been happy for the United States to constantly bang the Chinese about IP theft. And so if we can get other countries to do it as well, that raises the cost to the, to the Chinese. Um, but it is the early stages. Um, and I think the norm also has to come with some costs. Right, so let me, I want to ask you one more question about norms and then I want to close on, a, on, a, on the open internet. Attention. But well, I'm skeptical about cyber norms precisely because of the attribution problem. Yeah. A lot of your an the answer you just gave is we have to see if X happens, or we have to see if Y happens, and then we have to impose costs. But it, not only do you have to see what's happening to know if norms, and not only do you have to impose a cost for the norms to have purchase, 
but you also have to be able to do what DOJ has been doing a little bit, you know, publishing information about what you know. Yeah. And then, frankly, you've got to make that information credible. I mean, what we know about the hackers in Iran and the United and China from the U.S. indictment, it's who knows if that's credible. Who knows yeah. if it's going to be credible before others? I'm I'm just very skeptical, and this is worrisome. I think that we're going to see norms developing in a space where anonymity is so prevalent, attribution is so hard. Even if you can overcome those hurdles, making it public and punishing is so difficult. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm very skeptical. Do I, am I wrong about my skepticism? No, I think you're right. I think, you know, clearly the U.S. has been unwilling to burn a lot of technical means for, to promote a norm to, you know, clear, you know we, they fought it tooth and nail with, with North Korea and Sony. Right. right. I think they thought, okay, we can release this, this first set of IP addresses and techniques and, and means, and, and the community will go along. But when they got so much pushback from right. so many cybersecurity experts, they were forced to... To, to be credible. To be credible and, yeah. and burn some more. I think in that case, they decided it was worth it. But it's not clear to me with you that they're going to do it. But the, but the other way that norms emerge, right, is not always just sanctions and attribution. It's sh shared interest. Right. Right. So uh, I think there could be some shared interest in some very narrow areas. Right. Again, destructive attacks is yep. probably the most likely case. Right. Uh, and some cooperation probably on proliferation and non-state actors. Right. Right. The Chinese, uh, in particular, right, the Chinese economy is more and more dependent on the Internet. Right. It's actually 4.4 versus, you know, 3 point whatever in the United States. So as a percentage of GDP, it's going up in China. And the People's Liberation Army is going, wants to look more and more like the U.S. military, which is net-centric and vulnerable to cyber attacks. Right. So the Chinese are going to have, and they don't want ISIS to decide that their next cause is the Uyghurs. Right. Right. Uh, the, 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 the Muslim minorities out in the, in, um, in the, the Northwest. So I think there are some shared interest on um, destructive attacks. But it's, you know, right now we're talking about a very yeah. low bar, right? So the, the, the UN group of government experts you know, which just released this set of four norms, um, you know, 20 countries, China and the U.S. and Russia among them. One of the norms, right, was no destructive attacks on critical infrastructure during peacetime. Well, you're not supposed to attack people during peacetime anyway. Uh, what interest would you have on, in, in which attacking is, so during peacetime? So it's a pretty low bar. Yeah. Um, so I, I am skeptical, but I think there, there could be some shared interest there. So let me ask you finally, you talked about the Great Wall of China and the intense content control there and how they see that as an element of cybersecurity. In your book, you, you talked about the tension between the United States Open Internet Initiative and all the revelations in the last five or six years, three or four years, about how the United States has penetrated and compromised or seemingly compromised the network in so many ways. Um, and of course, the Open Internet Initiative is, is geared a lot towards nations like China. And at one point in the book you said it was it was contradictory or at least intention if not hypocritical, both our very aggressive cyber posture and this open internet initiative that we're pushing. Could you just tell us how you think about those two? Can yeah. we push both at the same time? Is is the open internet initiative was it effective before the Snowden revelations and is there can it possibly have any effectiveness now? Well I, I I think, you know, it, it had some effect. Clearly, you know, developing of Tor and other technologies and, and the continuing kind of pushing out of those things 
has made some people safer and allowed them to get around the firewall and, and other things. I think you know, this is a point that, you, that you've made uh, numerous times in, in your writing, which is that from the Chinese perspective, though, the open internet agenda is focused on regime change, right? right? And so while we say it as well, you know, we just want the free flow of information and people should have online, uh, the same human rights online as they do offline, the Chinese basically see it as, as an, a, an attack on state legitimacy and, and the regime. So for them, it's no different than the penetration into the networks and, and everything else. So I, I think we should still promote. I think we look hypocritical because, you know, we, we, we're, we try to distinguish the two and say that they're different. But I think we often forget that other countries just don't see it the same way right. that we do. And it's one thing to subsidize tour and export techniques for circumventing content control. It's another thing to be on our moral high horses about the free and open internet, I think. Yeah, and I just think it, it's a kind of, it's a blinders, right? We, we you know, I always use this example. We, um, we always say, oh, you know, the, in China there's no distinction between the public and the private sector and all these actors are really influenced by the government and it's especially true in cyber. Well, you know, after Mandiant re re uh, released the APT1 report, the Chinese went through and said, oh, this member of the board used to be on the NSA. This member of the board used to be on the FBI. This guy was a DOD. And so while we think they're really you know, opaque and that we can't understand the relationship, they think the exact same thing about us. They think that the private sector is a tool of, of the government. So I think we should be careful about how we, you know, you know, when I talk about American exceptionalism, we think that our, everyone is going to see what we're promoting as in their interest um, or take, take us at our word as opposed to interpreting it from their own interest. So I can't recommend this book highly enough. We, you've seen what an expert uh, Adam is. He has an extraordinary breadth of knowledge. He covers every, it's, it's, it has to be now easily the best general introduction to the whole array of cybersecurity issues, uh, both at the international level and the domestic. It's, it's told in an engaging way, but it doesn't compromise on the technical details. I can't recommend it highly enough. Thank you very much. Thank you, podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.